broadcast of The Bible Stands. We're continuing our study of the great pre-flood world. I call this series of messages, The World That Then Was. This is a study of the nature, population, politics, culture, and morals of the world before the great flood in the days of Noah. To open this sixth message of the series, let me read from the Gospel of Matthew. This passage is found in Matthew chapter 24, verses 36 through 39. But of that day and hour knoweth no man, no, not the angels of heaven, but my Father only. But as the days of Noah were, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. For as in the days that were before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day that Noah entered into the ark, and knew not until the flood came, and took them all away. So shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. It was in this way that our Lord Jesus Christ spoke of the time of his second coming in his Olivet Discourse. The Lord said, But as the days of Noah were, so shall also the days of the coming of the Son of Man be. It's obvious that the Lord was informing his disciples as to what they should look for in terms of social, moral, and spiritual conditions on the earth at the time of his return. In order that we fully understand our Lord's words, it seems necessary that we know something about the spiritual condition of man and about the civilization of the pre-flood world. I think it fitting that we dwell on this subject for the next few broadcasts. Let's see if we can piece together a broad picture that shows us the general level of enlightenment and progress of the human race in that world that existed before the Great Flood. Let's also see if we can find out anything about the social, moral, and spiritual conditions that prevailed during Noah's early life. I think we all realize that Scripture has not devoted a great deal of space to this subject. But what some often do not realize is that the meager space allotted to this subject is literally loaded with information. But before we look at that picture, let's consider what our secular history books tell us about the early history of man. Willis Mason West, in his book, A Short History of Early Peoples, provides an introduction to the subject of the first men on earth that is typical of the approach of secular history. This is a textbook of ancient history that only a few years ago was widely used both in the United States and Canada. Here's a direct quotation from Mr. West's opening chapter. The first men were more helpless than the lowest savages in the world today. They had neither fire nor light, no tool or weapon except their hands, and chance clubs or stones. We do not know a great deal about the earliest steps upward toward civilization, but they must have been very slow. The first marked gain was the discovery by some savage that he could chip off flakes from a flintstone by striking it with other stones to give it a sharp edge, a keen point, a convenient shape for the hand to grasp. This invention lifted man into the first stone age. In Europe, the Stone Age began at least 100,000 years ago." Unquote. Another widely read secular historian, H.G. Wells, in his book, Outline of History, describes early man in a similar way, but with much greater detail. This book has had a tremendous distribution throughout the world, and it's been translated into a great many languages. Mr. Wells uses the style of an on-the-scene newspaper reporter, and he writes with both clearness 
and with total assurance that what he says is absolutely true. He speaks dogmatically, as though he had actually observed that early race in their daily activities, and he gives the illusion that he has actually watched the steady upward growth of man over that 100,000-year period. You'll find that the very same views are expressed in the other secular textbooks used in our grade schools, high schools, and colleges. I have only one comment to express my heartfelt opinion of all of these. Hogwash. Or, let me use the language of the Apostle Peter. For this, they willingly are ignorant. Or perhaps the words of the Apostle Paul are appropriate. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. Whether one believes the Bible is inspired or not, if that one is aware of the facts, he must admit that this book is absolutely unique. As far as history and archaeology have been able to check it, it has been proven to be an absolutely reliable book. Let me emphasize this. The Bible has, over and over again, proven itself to be a reliable and accurate record of the most ancient of historical events. Yet, when writing our secular history books, modern historians have ignored this source entirely. What they have written flagrantly denies the great truth revealed to us in the Holy Scriptures. There is a fundamental conflict between the biblical revelation and our accepted version of early history. One of the two must fall. To see the biblical view of the earliest man, let me read the conclusion of the story of the fall of man as it's contained in Genesis chapter 3, verses 22 to 24. And the Lord God said, Behold, the man is become as one of us, to know good and evil. And now, lest he put forth his hand, and take also of the tree of life, and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him forth from the garden of Eden, to till the ground from which he was taken. So he drove out the man, and he placed at the east of the garden of Eden cherubims, and a flaming sword which turned every way to keep the way of the tree of life. There is a fundamental and basic conflict between the teachings of our secular system and the revelation of the Bible concerning the history of early man. Whether one believes in the inspiration of the Bible or not, if he's honest about it, he will have to admit that, so far as man can check it, the Bible is absolutely accurate in dealing with history. History and archaeology have been able to check the Bible on a number of points, and it has proven to be absolutely accurate on all of them. The Bible has, over and over again, proven itself to be a reliable and accurate record of the most ancient of historical events. In fact, it's the only written record in existence in many large areas of ancient history. Archaeological excavation and honest historical research have proven the Bible to be an absolutely reliable historical record. Yet when writing our secular history, modern historians have ignored this source of historical records entirely. They treat the Bible as though it were non-existent. Let me go on record as saying that this is not only unscholarly and unscientific, but it's also intellectually dishonest. Now, don't get me wrong, no one's going to deny that branches of the human race during all phases of world history have lived in caves as savages. There's considerable evidence to prove this, and in fact, there are savages living in caves today. 
the fact that large segments of the human race have degenerated to the level of savagery cannot and will not be denied. Notice that I emphasize that cavemen are degenerated to their state of savagery. This state is not simply a stage on the long climb to civilization. All men started out with a knowledge of the true and living God. We have the testimony of the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 26. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness, because that which may be known of God is manifest in them. For God hath showed it unto them. For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because that when they knew God, they glorified him not as God, neither were thankful, but became vain in their imagination, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools, and changed the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image made like the corruptible man, and to birds, and to four-footed beasts, and creeping things. Wherefore God also gave them up to uncleanness through the lusts of their own hearts, to dishonor their own bodies between themselves, who changed the truth of God into a lie, and worshiped and served the creature more than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this cause God gave them up to vile affections. And the description of this Roman's downward road goes on through verse 32. In this passage, Paul tells us of the path followed by all men that choose to forget God. And this path leads eventually to savagery. Human nature follows the second law of thermodynamics. There is continuous decay, not continuous improvement. We see a breed of savages developing in our own country today among the street people who have chosen to turn against all of God's standards and go their own way. So we cannot conclude or believe that the entire human race spring from a race of cave dwellers. We have not evolved from a race of savages. Even secular history itself provides ample evidence of this if man only would choose to believe it. It's an unwarranted conclusion that the entire human race has sprung from a race of savages or from creatures even lower than savages. The account which the Bible gives of the early history of man is quite different from that of the caveman and Stone Age myth of secular history. Men began as a special creation and a perfect being. Genesis chapter 1 and verse 27 verifies this. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him. The Bible says that man was created in the image of God, and it implies that he had a magnificent intellect. The Bible version of man's earliest history is entirely different from the secular up-from-beast-to-caveman theory. We're faced with a choice. Either the secular theory is correct, or the biblical revelation is correct. There is no way to harmonize the two. I see that my time is gone. We'll see that the evidence supports the biblical view of early man as we continue our study of the world that then was on the next broadcast. We're so Thank you for tuning in to today's broadcast of the Independent Faith Ministry of the Bible Stands. It's so good to greet you once again in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus the Christ. We're continuing our series of messages on the subject, The World That Then Was. This is the expression that the Apostle Peter used 
to refer to the world that perished in the great flood in the days of Noah. We're studying the physical characteristics, the population, the culture, the politics, the morals, and the religion of that world. Let me open this seventh message of the series by reading Genesis chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. And the Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground made the Lord God to grow every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food, the tree of life also in the midst of the garden, and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. The account which the Bible gives of the early history of man is quite different from that of secular history. Man began as a special creation and a perfect being. We read in Genesis chapter 1 and verse 27, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him. Man was created in the very image of God, and as a part of this image, man was given a magnificent intellect. The Bible tells us that from the very beginning, Adam had the gift of human language. Genesis chapter 2, verses 19 and 20 reads, And out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every fowl of the air, and brought them unto Adam to see what he would call them. And whatsoever Adam called every living creature, that was the name thereof. And Adam gave names to all the cattle, and to every fowl of the air, and to every beast of the field. This is mentioned only incidentally, but it's a proof text that Adam had both a keen intellect and the gift of speech. Notice that this incident presupposes several things. First, Adam must have had a remarkable insight into the nature of the various creatures. Otherwise, he could not have chosen names that would be suited to their characteristics. Secondly, Adam had a broad vocabulary. Without both intelligence and a vocabulary, he simply could not have named with fitting designations the things which God had made. I wonder how many of us could do that today. Now again, don't misunderstand me. I am not trying to say that God gave to Adam all the material equipment we today commonly associate with the term civilization. We know that God had provided a perfect earth as Adam's abode. God had commanded Adam to fill and subdue it and have dominion over it. This means that Adam was left to work out a system of order and a civilization for himself. We are justified in believing that Adam started his career by inventing the most basic tools and implements. Now we can probably assume that God taught Adam the use of fire from the beginning. That and his keen intelligence was all that he needed. Now it is true that when sin came into the world, human intellect suffered. So did the rest of man's faculties. But even then, men of that first world remained superior to their descendants of this world. Cro-Magnon man, with his great stature, his large brain capacity, and his well-formed skeleton probably represents the best of the pre-flood race. Adam and his race were certainly not savages. In Genesis chapter 4 and verse 17, we read, And Cain knew his wife, and she conceived, and bare Enoch, and he builded a city, and called the name of the city after the name of his son Enoch. 
we're certainly aware that savages don't build cities. And remember, Cain was the firstborn son of Adam. Enoch was only two generations away from the man whom God originally created. We find the most interesting scriptural record of the civilization of the pre-flood world in Genesis chapter 4, verses 19 through 24. Let me read that passage. And Lamech took unto him two wives. The name of the one was Ada, and the name of the other was Zillah. And Ada bare Jabel. He was the father of such as dwell in tents, and of such as have cattle. And his brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all such as handle the harp and organ. And Zillah, she also bare Tubal-Cain, an instructor of ever artificer in brass and iron. And the sister of Tubal-Cain was Naamah. And Lamech said unto his wives, Ada and Zillah, Hear my voice, ye wives of Lamech, hearken unto my speech, for I have slain a man to my wounding, and a young man to my hurt. And if Cain shall be avenged sevenfold, truly Lamech seventy and sevenfold. Here in this passage, we have condensed in just a few verses a tremendously informative picture of the culture of the pre-flood world. We are told that there were those who lived in cities, and then we're told that there were others that preferred to follow the free and wild life of the nomad and the cattleman. We're informed that musical instruments of both the stringed and wind variety had been invented. There were those who were sufficiently skilled to make such instruments, and there were also skilled artists to play them. Tubal Cain was both an inventor and also a master craftsman in brass, that is, bronze and iron. He was also a teacher of such skills. This presupposes that a part of that early civilization was engaged in the mining of minerals. The art of smelting and purifying of metals was known, and this kind of industry had been established. The molding and shaping of metal products was an accomplished art. And notice very carefully the words that Lamech addresses to his wives in verses 23 and 24. This is given in the form of a command that comes from one who has absolute authority over the one addressed. It also may well be and sounds very much like the opening line to a poem or a ballad. Notice that in these words, Lamech chooses to glorify both himself and his murderous deeds. This begins to give us an insight into both the type of culture and the moral condition of the civilization of Cain. We're specifically told that Lamech was a bigamist, and he was only six generations away from Adam. We know that Adam had full revelation of God's will concerning the marriage relationship. This is given in Genesis chapter 2 and verse 24. Therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother, and shall cleave unto his wife, and that's singular, and they shall be one flesh. We see how man had already rebelled, even in full knowledge of God's will, even though Adam was most probably still living. Lamech had violated God's command concerning the marriage relationship. He held his two wives in bondage. He engaged in self-glorification, and he used his strength to carry out his will on others. Revenge was a prime motivation of Lamech's life, and it wasn't an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Lamech's response was, I have slain a man in reprisal for wounds I received, and I have taken the life of a young man in exchange for a hurt I suffered. If Cain is to be avenged sevenfold, 
I am going to be avenged 77-fold. Lamech seems to have made himself a wicked and powerful feudal lord, tramping down all those that dared get in his way. He was most likely one of those of whom God tells us, the same became mighty men which were of old, men of renown, that is, men of name. Let me once again read God's description of the Canaanitic race of the pre-flood world. And Lamech took unto him two wives. The name of the one was Ada, and the name of the other was Zillah. And Ada bare Jabal. He was the father of such as dwell in tents, and of such as have cattle. And his brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all such as handle the harp and organ. And Zillah, she also bare Tubal-Cain, an instructor of ever artificer in brass and iron. And the sister of Tubal-Cain was Naamah. And Lamech said unto his wives, Ada and Zillah, Hear my voice, you wives of Lamech. Hearken unto my speech. For I have slain a man to my wounding, and a young man to my hurt. And if Cain shall be avenged sevenfold, truly Lamech seventy and sevenfold. Now, further on in Genesis chapter 6, verses 13 through 16, Noah is commanded to build an ark, the dimensions of which would be considered a large ship today. The instructions given to Noah presuppose that a considerable knowledge of mathematics was available to him, and also that he was skilled in mathematical manipulation. We have to also presuppose that Noah had possession of and knew how to use a variety of tools. He must also have had an advanced understanding of the art of building. In summary, we find here in the pre-flood world, at the very dawn of human history, various types of farming and ranching. We find a variety of industry and a variety of ways that men earn their livelihood. We find that various arts were highly developed and that there were inventors and inventions. The pre-flood world had music and poetry. They had all of those things in life that are found only in an advanced state of civilization. Now it is true that we can't afford to assume that the civilization and culture of the first world was on the same level in every part of the inhabited earth. I think we have to assume that there was a distribution. But the Bible assures us that the mainstream of humanity was certainly not a race of savages. I see that my time is gone for today. We'll consider cavemen and where they fit into world history as we continue our study of the world that then was on the next broadcast. Greetings in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus the Christ. Welcome to today's broadcast of The Bible Stands. It's a real privilege to come into your home or your car or your place of business with this message from God's Word. We're involved in a study of the characteristics of the pre-flood world of Adam. I call this study the world that then was. This is what the Apostle Peter called the world that perished in the great flood of Noah. What was that world like? That's the question that we're trying to answer. To open this eighth message of the series, let me read from the oldest book in the Bible, the book of Job. These words are found in chapter 30, verses 1 through 8. But now they that are younger than I have me in derision, whose fathers I would have disdained to have set with the dogs of my flock. Yea, whereto might the strength of their hands profit me, in whom old age was perished. For want and famine they were solitary, fleeing into the wilderness in former times desolate and waste. 
who cut up mallows by the bushes and juniper roots for their food. They were driven forth from among men. They cried after them as after a thief to dwell in the cliffs of the valleys, in the caves of the earth, and in the rocks. Among the bushes they brayed, under the nettles they were gathered together. They were children of fools, yea, children of base men. They were viler than the earth. On the last broadcast, we considered the picture of the culture and civilization of the pre-flood world that's given to us in Genesis chapter 4, verses 19 through 24. From these verses, we are brought to the conclusion that that world had all of the higher things in life that are found only in an advanced state of civilization. We do have to be careful, though. We cannot afford to assume that the civilization and culture of the first world was on the same high plane in every part of the inhabited globe. We have to assume some sort of a distribution, although it may not have been so pronounced as exists in our world today. But we can be reasonably sure that the same high level of civilization did not extend to all parts of the pre-flood world. Individuals are groups that separated themselves too far from the parent stock and they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, became isolated from the mainstream of the race for a period of time and declined and degenerated. We can assume that many traveled the downward road of Romans chapter 1 and became savages. So there were most likely savages and barbarous cave dwellers in the pre-flood world just as there are in this present world. But the mainstream of the pre-flood world race had reached high peaks of civilization and accomplishment. In many ways, that world was just as advanced, or perhaps more so, than we are today. By the way, the Bible certainly confirms that there were cave dwellers in the earliest centuries of the post-flood world. The book of Job is considered by many to be the oldest book in the Bible. Whether or not it was written before the Pentateuch is a matter of speculation, but the story this book relates goes back to only a few centuries after the flood. And Job tells us of cavemen that lived in his day. The passage that I read at the beginning of the program is from Job chapter 30, verses 1 through 8. In this passage, Job paints a vivid picture of those that dwell in the cliffs of the valleys, in caves of the earth, and in the rocks. Job de describes these human beings as vile savages. No doubt many of the Stone Age artifacts that have been found and that have led modern man into the belief that all civilizations spring from a population of cave dwellers were left by Job's cavemen. And these savages lived on this side of the flood. It is, of course, extremely difficult to say just what the world was like in Noah's day. However, in addition to those brief descriptive passages given in Genesis, there is another tremendously significant line of evidence that helps us to know something about that world. The line of evidence that I have in mind is that of the advanced stage to which civilizations were advanced at the very dawn of known human history. It is an undeniable yet most remarkable fact of history that the oldest civilizations known to us of the present world were tremendously advanced in every way. I refer to the ancient civilizations that were found in the valley of the Nile, in the valley of the Euphrates, on the island of Crete, in Asia Minor, and in southern Greece. 
Not only were all these civilizations highly advanced, but they have many peculiar similarities. And although they were widely separated from a geographical standpoint, they were at about the same stage of development at the same point in time. They show every evidence of having had a common origin. All of these great civilizations are separated by only a relatively short period of time from the age of Noah, from the pre-flood world. By the way, these great civilizations are simply just not explainable by the caveman theory. They are abnormalities which secular historians simply do not try to explain. But these advanced civilizations stand as powerful evidence both for the falsity of the speculations of the secular historians and for the truth of the biblical record. We have previously considered the civilization and culture of the pre-flood race. Based primarily on the brief descriptions given in Genesis chapter 4, we can know that civilization had advanced to a rather remarkable level before that world perished in the great flood of Noah. But we also have extra biblical evidence that testifies to the advanced state of pre-flood civilization. Again, the evidence that I have in mind is the advanced stage to which civilizations of this world had achieved at the very dawn of known human history. It is an undeniable yet quite remarkable fact of history that the oldest civilizations known to us of the present world were tremendously advanced in every way. Since these civilizations were separated by only a short period of time from the pre-flood world of Noah, this fact provides powerful evidence for the truth of the biblical record. These great civilizations just are not explainable by the caveman theory of human origin. There stand the great civilizations of Egypt and Babylon in all their glory, just as man was supposed to have been in the latter part of the Stone Age. The only plausible explanation for these highly advanced civilizations is that they were erected by men who had seen the great civilizations of the pre-flood world and who re-established replicas of them on this side of the flood. This points a finger directly toward Noah and his sons. From the early great civilizations of our world, we can know that Noah and his family must have lived among a pre-flood race that enjoyed many of the highest achievements of social and cultural maturity. In the oldest days of which we have written records, we find Egypt exhibiting a degree of civilization that is unexplainable, except on the theory that she had inherited knowledge from an advanced world that perished in the Great Flood. Magnificent pyramids, still standing today, illustrate that ancient Egypt had an advanced architectural science. The masonry of the ancient Egyptian structures is unrivaled, even today. The proportion and structure of the Egyptian monuments also reveal that these people had an advanced knowledge of geometry and of all mathematics. Archaeologists have unearthed works of art that prove that the sculpture of Egypt had reached near perfection. The art of picture writing, hieroglyphics, had been perfected. Egypt had a highly and minutely organized army and also a civil service. Society in Egypt had divided itself into classes. There were wealthy lords, there was a middle class, and there were slaves. We also know that Egypt had acrobats, dancers, harpists, singers, and games of chance. The records and remains of Babylon on the Euphrates and the countries on the Aegean show a similar state of development. On the island of Crete, a palace that dates back to the dawn of present world history has been unearthed. 
This palace spreads over four acres of ground. It's made up of beautiful halls, living rooms, corridors, throne rooms, treasure rooms, and so forth. Within these ruins, there are many beautiful frescoes that depict a highly civilized and brilliant life of lords and ladies of the court. What is especially amazing is that there are bathrooms with a drainage system that are superior to anything that was ever built in Europe up until the 19th century. The pipes could be flushed, and man traps were included to permit inspection and repair. Clay tablets with written records show that the art of writing was just as advanced as that of the Egyptians. The Code of Hammurabi, discovered in Susa in 1902, dates back to the time of Abraham or earlier. This is the oldest known complete code of laws in the world. The existence of this code proves beyond doubt that the people for which it was made were already far advanced in civilization. There were laws against bribery of judges and witnesses in court. There were laws against careless medical practices. There were articles against careless and dishonest building contractors. The code defined property rights. It guarded against oppression of widows and orphans and it provided for deeds, wills, marriage settlements, and legal contracts. There's but one explanation. These nations continued where the civilization of Noah left off. The eight survivors on the ark transplanted civilization of the first world into this world. Concerning those early civilizations of the post-flood world, the scripture says, And Cush begat Nimrod. He began to be a mighty one in the earth. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Wherefore it is said, even as Nimrod, the mighty hunter before the Lord. And the beginning of his kingdom was Babel, and Erech, and Akkad, and Calneh, in the land of Shinar. Out of that land he went forth when he was strong, and builded Nineveh, and the city Rehoboth, and Calah, the same as a great city. My time is gone. We'll conclude our study of The World That Then Was on the next broadcast. To today's broadcast of the Independent Faith Ministry of the Bible Stand. Today I'm bringing the concluding message of the series that I call The World That Then Was. For more than a week now, we've been studying that remarkable world that existed before the great flood in the days of Noah. We've considered the physical characteristics of that world, its population, and its culture. In this concluding message, I'd like to consider the spiritual and moral conditions of the people who inhabited that world that perished. Let me open this ninth message of the series by reading Genesis chapter 6, verses 1 through 3. And it came to pass, when men began to multiply on the face of the earth, and daughters were born unto them, that the sons of God saw the daughters of men, that they were fair, and they took them wives of all which they chose. And the Lord said, My spirit shall not always strive with man, for that he also is flesh. Yet his days shall be an hundred and twenty years. It's not unreasonable to conclude that man before the flood had not only multiplied and become a great population, but that he had also taken possession of the earth. He had reached a high state of civilization and culture. In his rather brief span, pre-flood world man had achieved great things. It might be said that this was the golden age in the history of man. Many of the various mythologies of our present world are just a faint and distorted memory of the great pre-flood world. Think of the stories of Ulysses, Sinbad, Jason, and others. But there's another, a grim side to this picture. 
Running parallel to these great material and cultural achievements, we find a steady course of moral decay and spiritual degeneracy. As we've already seen, polygamy began early in the generations of Cain. Lamech committed murder and boasted about it in a ballad to his two wives. Lamech indulged in self-glorification and he lived to exercise his might over the weak. In the two genealogies of Genesis chapter 4 and Genesis chapter 5, the development of the human race is traced through two lines that are fundamentally different. These two lines are headed by Cain and Seth, respectively. In Genesis chapter 6 and verse 2, Seth's line is referred to as the children are sons of God. Cain's line is called the children are daughters of men. Apparently the traits that characterized these two brothers were passed on to their descendants. The Cainites were wicked and worldly. Like their father, they took no thought of God. The Sethites retained their father's faith in God and they represented a line of believers. It was through Seth's line that the promise of the coming Savior made by God in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15 was kept alive. As time went on and the race multiplied, these two separate lines gradually began to merge. The restraints of separation slowly faded away. The children, sons of God, were influenced by their neighbors and gradually became more like them. Soon the lines of separation were obliterated and the spiritual ruin of that first world population moved toward completion when the men of the godly line began to intermarry with the daughters of the worldly line. This is what we're told in Genesis chapter 6, verses 1 through 3, the passage that I read at the beginning of this message. The sons of God saw the daughters of men that they were fair, and they took them wives of all which they chose. These words tell us that the barriers of separation were broken. Members of the godly line no longer permitted themselves to be guided by the Spirit of God. They gave way to unrestrained license and freedom. The result was that the children, sons of God, were soon degraded to the level of the children, daughters of men. Intermarriage was followed by total decay and corruption. The line of Seth eventually became completely merged with the line of Cain, except for Noah and his immediate family. The moral and social conditions of the latter part of the pre-flood world are vividly described in Genesis chapter 6, verses 4 and 5. There were giants in the earth in those days, and also after that, when the sons of God came in unto the daughters of men, and they bare children to them, the same became mighty men which were of old, men of renown. And God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. There were giants in the earth in those days, says the Holy Spirit of God. The word translated giants, Nephilim, is a Hebrew word that only appears in one other verse in the entire Bible. That second verse is Numbers chapter 13 and verse 33, where the word refers to the sons of Anak. Nephilim has been translated in a number of ways. Martin Luther translated it tyrants. One lexicon defines it, those who fall upon others, brigands, thugs, tyrants. But the connotation of large size and great strength is in this word also. I think that we're to believe that these giants were famous, renowned warlords of the pre-flood world feudal system. They were apparently feudal leaders who made themselves great in the affairs of this world. 
By deeds of war for their own glory, they filled that beautiful first world with violence. They were godless in their personal lives and family relationships, and they were unrestrained in their carnal lusts. They were violent and lawless in their actions toward their fellow men. There was no fear of God and no respect for any kind of law and order. The Bible gives us the grains of truth behind the great myths of the ancient civilizations. Again, let me read the words of Genesis chapter 6, verses 4 and 5. There were giants in the earth in those days, and also after that, when the sons of God came in unto the daughters of men, and they bare children to them, the same became mighty men, that is, heroes, which were of old, men of renown, men of name, men of fame. And God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. These giants, or tyrants, of Genesis chapter 6 and verse 4, then, were the powerful feudal leaders of the pre-flood world. They were those who made themselves great in that world's affairs. By deeds of war, for revenge, and for their own personal glory, these mighty men filled that beautiful first world with violence. They were godless in their personal lives, and they were tyrannical in their family relationships and they were totally unrestrained in satisfying their carnal lusts. They were violent and lawless in their actions toward their fellow men. They held no fear of God, and they had absolutely no respect for any kind of law and order except for that which was in their own strength. These men are, no doubt, the real characters behind the mythical heroes of the ancient civilizations, Hercules, Sinbad, Jason, and all the others. Nimrod the builder of the Tower of Babel, who lived on this side of the flood, even after God had given men civil law in the Noachian Covenant, tried to follow their example and to set up a similar form of culture in our world. Also, the great feudal lords of the Middle Ages tried to return man to the pre-flood world cultural system. Notice how the Holy Spirit uses words like corrupt or corrupted, violence, wickedness, and flesh, in the passage of Genesis chapter 6, verses 5 through 7. And God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And it repented the Lord that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him in his heart. And the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast and creeping thing, and the fowls of the air, for it repenteth me that I have made them. Those words are emphasized over and over again. The great warlords, the tyrants, the giants, thought were only directed toward doing evil. And as these pre-flood men thought, so they acted. And the earth was filled with violence. The civilization that lived before the flood was apparently not a pagan or an idolatrous people. Scripture doesn't promote this idea at all. Idolatry was a later development. It came after Nimrod and his Tower of Babel. These pre-flood world people were proud, but they were lawless, and they were totally unconcerned about God and His will. They enjoyed a lifespan of over 800 years, and they apparently lived as though they would never die. They took no thought of an afterlife or of a judgment by an omnipotent Creator. They were great and progressive in the things of the world, but they were materialistic and carnal in their philosophy of life. In short, Men in that pre-flood world were very much like the men of civilized nations of today. The pre-flood world population lived only to satisfy the lust of the eyes, the lust of the fresh, and the pride of life. They were boasters, they were proud, they were violent, 
they were blasphemers. They were eating, drinking, marrying, and giving in marriage. They were satisfying the flesh. The Lord reminds us of this when he tells us what the post-flood world, our world, will be like at the time of his second coming in Matthew chapter 24, verses 37 through 39. But as the days of Noah were, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. For as in the days that were before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day that Noah entered into the ark, and knew not until the flood came and took them all away. So shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. So God pronounced a judgment on that first world, and it repented the Lord that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him at his heart, and the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth. Let's summarize our picture of the world that then was. The physical world of the pre-flood race was great and beautiful beyond our present powers of conception. The race of men of that world had increased to a population of great numbers, and they had taken possession of the earth. The pre-flood world race was a superior race in the affairs of the world, progressive, cultured, and enterprising. But they were also arrogant, godless, and wicked. Because of their wickedness, God wiped them away and blotted out their memory, and with them he even destroyed the earth and everything that lived upon it. Shouldn't we take warning? Whereby the world that then was, being overflowed with water, perished. But the heavens and the earth that are now by the same word are kept in store, reserved unto fire against the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. My time is gone. I've been greatly blessed in bringing you this series of messages on the world that then was.